Thank you very much. Thank you both. Um, <clears throat> I think it's very fitting here in St. Anthony's that we should honour the memory of Guido de Tello. He was, as you've heard, one of our first substantial contacts with Latin American academic life and a constant visitor and all the other things that have been said about him. And he was a, I, I, he certainly was a friend of mine, and he was one of those friends which, when you think of him, uh, you can see his mean, you can see his face, you can see his teasing expression, and you can see his smile, which is just like yours. Um, why have I chosen this subject? I'm not going to talk about Colombia, I'm going to talk about Argentina, and I'm going to talk about the United States, and I'm going to talk about Canada from time to time. I'm, I chose this subject for, I think, well, you know, one can always give various reasons why one chooses a subject if you're an academic. There are the honest reasons and there are the pretentious reasons. Um, the pretentious reason might be to say that Guido was a person who loved comparisons. And he himself explored comparisons between Argentina, Argentina and Canada, Argentina and Australia, um, largely from the point of view of economic history, but he loved comparisons. And it was always his, his impulse and his desire to, if you like, to, 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 what he wanted to do was to define Argentina's place in the modern world. Not at all an easy task, as I'm sure that the Argentines present will know. Um, he also, he was also an East I'm glad to say. And from early days, a passion of the arts. His passion also is those who visited the house, the bunker, will know that he was passion of strange architecture. And you might find St. Anthony's familiar these days. Um, he was also, you know, a, 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 a collector who had a very particular eye. And he was also, one can say, that he was an eccentric. I can remember being rung up by Guido in the middle of the night because he'd got the time wrong between Argentina and the United Kingdom. Uh, to ask me to check over his list of... of uh, readable works that he intended as part of the famous charm offensive to send to the Falkland Islands. And these, these were classics of Argentina and Anglo-Argentine classics, Hudson and others. And eccentric, not all diplomats are like that. And uh, both General Lucio B. Mancia, who I'm going to talk about, and Francis Parkman, when you look at him closely, they were both eccentrics. And they were both, I think, in their different ways, great artists. And so I chose them partly, those, if you like, for the sort of intellectual reasons. There's also a personal reason. Um, this last summer, or oh, anyway, those of you who are sitting near and who are observant may see that round my wrists there are two pieces of string, and you, I don't know, if you're curious, you may wonder why there are two pieces of string tied around my wrist, and this is because I visited the Sierra Nevada of Santa Marta, and I went to visit an, an, an excursion, 
an excursion to the Kogi Indians. And the Kogi Indians were sitting, the mamas, the elders of the tribe were sitting by the sacred river under an enormous sacred tree on their immemorial stone chairs, chewing away at the coca. And uh, I received uh, a lecture from a, a very fine, finely dressed Kogi Indian, called immaculate in white homespun as they always are, um, on uh, the theory of interculturality. That was his word, interculturality. The, the lecture was, I think, somewhat beyond me in many ways, but it did show how adaptable those particular Indians were and how very up-to-date they were in, if you like, the sort of academic rubbish which is part of their defences. Um, then came a Kogi lady who tied these strings round my wrists. And they'd also been tied earlier around the wrists of William Jefferson Clinton, President of the United States, Juan Manuel Santos, President of Colombia, Shakira, who you all have heard of. They've all had their wrists tied with strings. And of course, one mustn't remove the string because that does not bring good fortune. And so that started me there too. That it started me thinking on, you know, the endless problem of how these Indians and others should interact. An endless and insoluble problem. And it took me back also to two readings. One, the reading of General Mancia's visit to the Rankel Indians, which I'm going to talk about. And the other, the work of Francis Parkman, The Oregon Trail. Um, as you know, how many people have read Mancia? Raise your hands, just to give me a check. There's a few, good, good. And how many people have read Parkman? Really? You're not lying. <laughs> no? No? Okay, well, one can see that gives me, I have the advantage of you because most of you, few of you, who's read both? <laughs> one, yes, well, you'd better leave. <laughs> but anyway, that gives me a certain advantage over you. And I'm going to talk about Parkman, and I'm going to talk about Mansia, and I'm going to talk, spec show you a speculation or introduce you to my reflections on these two, both of them in their different ways, I think, authors, great authors. I admire them both. Don't think I'm, I, one cannot resist making certain jokes and observations at Parkman's expense. It's more difficult than Mansia because Mansia had a sense of humor and a sense of self-mockery, which Parkman, I don't think, was very strongly endowed with. And so, but don't think if I make some sly observations about Parkman that I do not admire his books greatly. Well, to tell you about them, because some of you are not familiar, um, Parkman, Bostonian, born 1823, a very okay Bostonian on all sides of his ancestry, and his father was a prominent, a leading Unitarian minister, the first Unitarian church of Boston. You can't get really more Bostonian, and in some ways, well, yes, more Bostonian, very proper Bostonian, Mr. Parkman. He was born in 1823. 1840, he entered Harford, um, and he was, made some early travels in the local wildernesses of New England as a sort of preliminary run to his much more lengthy journey later on across the prairies. In 1843-4, to four, he made a tour of Europe. 
And he left a journal, it's quite an interesting and remarkable journal for a young man. Um, he went to Sicily and other places, he went to London, went, to, went around Europe, back he goes to Harvard, takes his law degree, um, and in 1846, from April to October 1846, he made his trip the, across the Oregon Trail, uh, right across the plains to the Rockies, and down and back on the Santa Fe Trail, which resulted in the publication later of a series of articles, which later appeared in 1849 in a book, The Oregon Trail. Um, his later, he was always suffered greatly from obscure illnesses. He was rather a professional invalid. Not quite, nobody's been able to say exactly what was wrong with Parkman. He was at times nearly blind. And he wrote, well, he either dictated or he wrote with the aid of a board with wires stretched across it. And seeing he wrote seven large volumes on France and England in North America, this is quite an achievement. But he, he really went, you know, he didn't, didn't, uh, didn't, um, uh, he did travel again to see his uh, sort of various other places in the back for backgrounds of the books he was writing. But most of his time he spent held up in Boston in his attic study, surrounded with a few bows and arrows and a bit of souvenirs from his trip across the prairie. Um, he became a professor at Harvard. And he was, was, however, a professor of horticulture because he got very keen on gardening and even produced hybrid lilies. There's a lily called Lilium Park Manny, which he managed to sell to English nurseries. <laughs> he also wrote, wrote something called the Book of Roses. Um, there you are. He also uh, was a, 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 a fairly vocal opponent of universal suffrage, and particularly of votes for women. And he wrote two tracts against votes for women. And he died in 1893 of appendicitis. Right, that's Parkman, brief sketch of Parkman. Mancia. Mancia was born in Buenos Aires in 1831. He was the son of General Lucio Mancia, the hero of the battle of Vuelta de Obligado, when the British and the French were breaking the, the, the blockade uh, the, across the river Paraná. A very okay background because his mother was the sister of Juan Manuel de Rosas, the dictator of the time who was to last up to the 1850s, and comes in that case from a very rich, very, if you like, very okay, very, uh, very, very, uh, um, well, I don't know what word to use, one can't say really aristocratic, although in some ways one can, the upper class, you know, well, you know, anyway, from the upper reaches of uh, Buenos Aires society and very close to power. Um, he was an impulsive youth. He, at one point, when he was about 16, he decided to elope to Montevideo with a, a French, a young French milliner. That was put a stop to. He was sent to live for a time on some of the family estances. Um, he was found there reading Le Contrat, uh, Le Contrat Social of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. This was not considered to be suitable reading for a young Argentine at the time. No, no, no. His father said, you read that sort of thing, you better leave Argentina because that's not the book for this place and time. And his father sent him off very curiously on a trip to India, to British India, um, with a large sum of money. He was meant to buy sort of tea and knickknacks and things for the Argentine money market, but he spent the money mostly on himself and on his travels. 
And he kept a journal of those travels. Again, a very remarkable journal for a young man. He went to, uh, not only went to India, traveled in India, traveled up the Red Sea, up to in the Mediterranean, visits Europe, visits London, goes back to Argentina. This was the first of a life which was to be filled with incessant travels. He was a great traveler until his death. Um, back he goes to Argentina, back he goes to Europe. Um, he, in 1860, he joined the de Linea, he became a soldier, but he'd been many other things besides. And I've made, rather than sort of going into the details of his career, I made a list of all the things that Mancia was. Mancia was a dandy, very sharp dresser. Joke being, you know, make me a tight pair of trousers. If I can get into them, I shan't pay you. <laughs> I don't know. It's a joke about tight trousers. Um, he was a, a, a duelist. He allegedly fought 17 duels. And he, two of them, I think he killed his opponent. Seriously dangerous chap in that respect. He was a journalist. He was a translator. He translated the Vigny, he translated the Federalist, he translated... Every time he got some post, he would translate some relevant thing. He wrote also tracts on you know, ordinances for the Argentine army. He was a very prolific writer of all sorts of things. Journalist, a translator, a soldier. He was a serious soldier. Um, he uh, was a serious soldier who fought in a serious war. He fought throughout the Paraguayan War, 1865 onwards, the Triple War, the Triple Alliance, in which Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil fought against Paraguay. That was a long war and a, an, an intense war. So there's nothing pseudo, there's nothing false about his soldiering. He was also a politician. He was a, a diplomat. Um, he was a diplomat both in, in, in South America, a certain mission in Chile, also at various courts of Europe. Um, I followed a bit his diplomatic career. Some interesting little anecdotes emerge from that. Always from Mancia, interesting anecdotes emerge. He got on terribly well with the Emperor Franz Joseph, with whom he had an intense conversation about Franz Joseph's fervor as a collector of menu cards. <laughs> you know, Franz Joseph had, according to Mancia, 4,000 menu cards. So they had a nice chat about menu cards. He was also an economist, read quite a lot on economic matters. He was um, a, a, yep, and he was um, an infatigable attender at international congresses. He was the Argentine representative, for example, at the Electrical Congress in Paris in 1881, when they decided some sort of international confabulation about how many volts and how many amperes and what sort of things you're going to, you know, serious chap. All these things, he was an immigration agent. He was everything, in fact. He was even a lecturer at times, which is the only thing I can think I have directly in common with him. <laughs> um, he was an incessant traveler to and fro Buenos Aires and Europe. I think he, a number of times he crossed the equator, sort of over 20 times, going back and forth, which is very restless. And one Argentine critic compared him to Chamisa's shadowless man. The man who, with seven league boots, went to and fro in the world looking for his own lost shadow. Nice image. Um, he 
was in, ended his days in Paris. Um, those of you who like these sort of snobbish connections will be pleased to hear that he was known to Proust and his uh, book of aphorisms was dedicated with permission uh, to Count Robert de Montesquieu. You can't get much sort of more sort of <laughs> smart than that. Incidentally, he died in October, 8th of October, 1913. So it's 100 years almost to the day that General Mansia died. Um, these two men are authors of the two works which uh, for Republican times, one can say, are the two great books on their respective frontiers. That is the frontage, you know, just the United States westward moving frontier and the Argentine, roughly, both those frontiers roughly move from east to west. And there are frontiers on which there are whites, mestizos, and Indians, and lots of horses. And there are vast expanses of land. So I think taking, going back to Guido's delight in comparisons, these are comparable. Things to be comparable don't have to be identical. In fact, there's no point in comparing identical things because they're identical. What is worth comparing are similar things. And these are the two classic works of both countries. The Oregon Trail, um, as one of its recent editors describes it, is the preeminent narrative, the classic tale of the journey west. It's gone through very many editions, numerous editions, and it's also gone through numerous editors. One of the sort of minor pleasures of reading the Oregon Trail, especially as the editors become closer and closer to our own times, is the terrible trouble they have with Parkman's views, which, as I will, I think, go on to show you, uh, the sort of views that modern editors, especially in the academic climate of the United States, find very hard to take. Um, but still, it's still the book that ordinary people, normal people, people who aren't academics, read about, if you like, the frontier, the movement of the American frontier. Um, he also read quite a lot, and there are quite a lot of observations in his historical works, which that one can link to the Oregon Trail. And so some of my remarks on Parkman won't be exclusively about the Oregon Trail. I will show off a bit by referring to his denser, less read historical works. Parkman has recently been entombed in three volumes of the, of the, of the Library of America. Um, I say entombed because I'm not quite sure. I think that sometimes the Library of America appears to be rather scraping the barrel looking for classics, and I'm not sure how many people are going to go through the seven volumes of France and England in, in you know, I don't know, in the, you know, who knows. Anyway, um, that's part. Um, there is a, that's, I'd note, you know, one look checks one's bibliographies and things like that, and one notices there is a small, uh, no doubt soon expanding Parkman industry among academics, and there are all these, uh, as I say, these successive editors with their successive notes, and I shall be referring a bit more to them later on. The other work, the excursions of the Rankell Indians. This was written, uh, published a series of articles by General Mansia in 1870. Um, 
And shortly after he'd made his excursion to visit the Rankel Indians in the same year, it was published also rapidly as a book, and it won a prize in a French a geographical Congress in 1871, 75, sorry. Um, it was, merits were fairly early recognized, and there are more than uh, two or three 19th century editions, fairly frequent 20th century editions. Um, there's an excellent edition in the, this one in the Fondo de Cultura Economica, the famous um, Mexican editorial. And edition, and it's recently had two English translations. So it has acquired a bit of fame. Um, the University of Texas and the University of Nebraska. Um, <clears throat> these are two books, as I say, ordinary literate people are likely to read. Um, there are, of course, you know, neither the capacity nor the inclination to sort of go through the surrounding literature. These two, these two ones will do for this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> I intend to take you through both, and I assume as a result of my little survey that um, very few of you, only one of you is familiar with both these texts, and those who, if you're familiar with either the other two, weren't that many, so that gives me a sense of security, and also it justifies my telling you what they're about and what I'm, you know, bringing out as some of their qualities. And I say again that I'm an admirer of both um, very much. Oregon Trail. Parkman went west in 1846, between the months of March and September. Six or seven months his journey took. Um, out to the Rockies, across the plains, down south to the Santa Fe Trail, and back to civilization. He was only 23. Uh, Mancia, was, uh, when he visited the Rankill Indians, was 40, so he had the advance shot in there. And it's very much, a, if you like, a youthful journal, a journal, a youthful man's book. He kept a journal. The journal is quite similar to the book. And that gives the editors a marvellous time also finicking away at what's in the journal and what isn't in the book, etc., etc. It's just strange what people get up to. But anyway, across the plains, the foothills, the Rocky Mountains. Um, at Harvard, uh, Parkman, one of Parkman's contemporaries in Harvard said, oh yes, Francis, he had engines on the brain. Um, yes and no. He did have engines on the brain. He wanted, he says that his intent was to see how the Indians lived, to come back with a first-hand account. But his original ambition, which is, was to write the history of the American forest. That is the expression he uses, which isn't quite the same thing. What he was, he was a, a, a wilderness fan, well, like Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, incidentally, dedicated his four volumes on the winning of the West to Parkman at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, shortly after Parkman's death. Um, he, he wrote the history of the American forest. His family disapproved, his Bostonians, they thought, no, 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 this, this really wouldn't do. Um, and they tried to dissuade him, but he was adamant, and uh, he, uh, he, even though he was not in the best of health, he was always a delicate person, off he goes across 
to, across the prairie with a view to studying the manners and character of Indians in their primitive state. A long adieu, he says, to bed and board and to the principles of, of, of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. He never used his law degree, and I think he was quite glad to see the back of Blackstone as well as the back of Boston. His book has enormous merits. How can I convey them? I can convey them, of course, which I, I'm going to do a certain amount of quoting, but can't have the time to do all that much quoting. It is extraordinarily fresh. You really do feel the, the, the great spaces of the prairies, the wind, the rain. Very keen on, on prairie storms, which you know, become slightly repetitive. But it's like, to give you a sort of visual image, it's like the painter Church. Those vast paintings of the Andes and the West, you know, sort of uh, Hudson River School magnified, full of, full of landscape, full of air, etc. It's it, and and in that sense, uh, it, it, it's uh, although you know, uh, it's not to everyone's taste. I think he's he's really rather good at that. He's also it is a sort of photograph. He had great powers of observation. And his book is filled with memorable sketches. Um, let, me, let me read you one. I'm going to read you one because one has to get. Here is a little sketch, part one, about, uh, if I can find it, yes, where he's talking about an Indian lady who's had a quarrel with her dog. The Indians, incidentally, eat dogs. And here's this, what is this, his account of this, 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 um, yup. In front of the lodge, another squaw was standing, angrily scolding an old yellow dog who lay on the ground with his nose resting between his paws and his eyes turned sleepily up to her face as if he were pretending to give respectful attention but resolved to fall asleep as soon as the scolding was all over. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, said the old woman. I've fed you well and taken care of you ever since you were small and blind and could only crawl about and squeal a little instead of howling as you do now. When you grew old, I said you were a good dog. You were strong and gentle when the load was put on your back. The Indians used dogs with traverse to carry things. And you never ran among the feet of the horses when we were all traveling together over the prairie. But you had a bad heart. Whenever a rabbit jumped out of the bushes, you were always the first to run after him to lead away all the other dogs behind you. You ought to have known that it was very dangerous to act so. When you got far out on the prairie and no one was near to help you, perhaps a wolf would jump out of the ravine, and then what could you do? You would certainly have been killed, for no dog can fight well with a load on his back. Silly dog, only three days ago you ran off that way. I tell you, you have a bad heart and you must die. So saying, the squaw went into the lodge and coming out with a large stone mallet, killed the unfortunate dog with one blow. And this, you know, it's a memorable little sketch. Um, it's more and on, more and on. Um, Parkman was also, I think, uh, entranced with danger. One of the things which makes the Oregon Trail live is that we can tell that this is, this is not easy, this is dangerous stuff. Indians are dangerous. Um, 
one of his editors pointed out to Bartman and his, his companion. His companion was a chap called Quincy Adams Shaw, who was another, of course, ultra-okay Bostonian. He says these two, they actually ran far greater risks because they refused to mix with the people of inferior class on the prairie. They were very standoffish, and so they kept going off in, you know, just for themselves and their servants, instead of joining up with the other people they found on the prairie, and this increased their danger. But still, they survived. Um, yeah, there is, yes, he was entranced with danger, and he says, you know, his phrase is, there is a mysterious basilisk charm in the eye of danger. I think that the psychology department is really quite something. You know, here is this very proper, very buttoned up Bostonian, and uh, you know, was disapproving parents who didn't want him to write the history of the American forest, and certainly didn't want him to go worrying off the prairies. You know, but he liked danger. It gave him a kick. And he can be, more and on about that, he can be also, in his expression of things, quite, quite cruel. He's been, I've mentioned, he's been edited in, in, within an inch of his life. The edited and annotated editions contain large numbers of notes, which again, some of them have their charm. You can they tell you about, you know, what Parkman sees a grey hair. And so the editor says, this hair was probably uh, the white-tailed jackrabbit, Lepus Tanzendi, the largest of the hares at the Priory, and, and not, of course, the, 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 the eastern cottontail, which was the rabbit that Parkman would have been familiar with. And you learn a lot about the eastern cottontail and this and that and the other if you read the notes. But back to the... His editors find him difficult because Parkman disapproves of so much. Parkman's record of disapproval is spectacular. Um, he didn't disapprove of a great deal of what he saw. But what gives his book the readability again is this combination of zest and disapproval. Um, yeah, people don't write like that now, but anyway, we'll, we'll you know. He's, again, you get these bursts of nostalgia for New England, which contrast with the wildness of the prairie. At one point, he, he sees the hum, a little robin, and, and he hears the buzzing of the bees in the prairie flowers. And he thinks, you know, he confesses that he thinks this is rather inappropriate. The robin should be back in New England, and the bees should be buzzing around in a New England garden. They shouldn't be on the prairie. So he has a little moment there of nostalgia. But he writes a lot of, of I'd made a list again. I thought this is the best way to get through, you know. This is going to be a long lecture, but you're all comfortable, and some of you have come a long way, and therefore, if I was to give you a short lecture, that really wouldn't be fair. <laughs> um, he, it, it, he, it, yeah, he, it, it, this, this, um, you know, here's this Bostonian on the prairie, um, to which incidentally he took a supply of calling cards 
which is another eccentricity. The number of times on the prairie you needed a calling card, perhaps not many. Um, he wrote with, he wrote, you know, um, one of the editors said, you know, what makes him read, readable? In part, sadly, the editor said, one finds with the, the, the continuing appeal of the Oregon Trail, um, are these, these, these improper, you know, nowadays considered unjustified disapprovals, and the reminders of the culture out of which Parkman wrote. Because Parkman, again, one of his editors says, you know, he left with you know, a very New England culture from Boston, and he went back with a very New England culture to Boston, and it didn't change him much. Anyway, here's for your delight, I hope, is a short list of disapprovals. Mexicans, frequently referred to as Spaniards, squalid Mexicans with their broad hats, vile faces overgrown with hair. On the frontier, there are white men, Indians, and Mexicans in that order, and Mexicans are not white men. Dark, slavish-looking they are, gazing stupidly out from beneath their broad hats. Indians, again, the mounted list of the, the list of disapproval department of Indians, um, which is not total, again, because he did have Indians on the brain. But at the same time, here we go, Indians were uh, unpredictable, um, divided in violent conflict among themselves, treacherous, thieving, frequently drunk, sadistic, masochistic, I put in masochistic, but they did a lot of self-harm goes on in some of these Indian uh, rites and ceremonies. Um, uh, they had dreadful eating habits um, and no very attractive spectacle uh, to the civilized eye. Um, they were, uh, they have frequently black snaky eyes, they're torturing, merciless, fickle, inconstant, um, and it, it has, he confesses that the constant campfire uh, talk was on the vices and viciousness of the Indians. They, their, their names were frequently names of gross indecency. Unfortunately, it doesn't say what, but anyway, a lot of their names they were grossly indecent. Um, they, uh, their lives were uh, uh, largely consumed in periods of mere vacancy. But, yeah, enough on the Indians. We'll come back to the Indians because... That's not all he thought about Indians, of course not. Um, he also, mind you, disappears of, uh, disapproves of a great many other aspects of priory nature. He disapproved of prickly pears and cacti who were reptile-like, according to him. He also, of course, disapproved of reptiles. Um, uh, he disapproved of Canadian trappers who had bad complexions and brutish expressions. Yep, more about Canadians also coming. Um, he disapproved of buffaloes, of which there were still a great many. And his description of the buffaloes, they would leap up at my approach and stare stupidly at me through their tangled manes. You know, how, yes, well, you know, poor old buffalo, it was stupid and its mane was tangled. Um, yeah. He, the Indians didn't even fight properly and, and didn't even get drunk properly. He compares them there. In his drinking bouts, we find none of that robust and full-toned mirth which reigned at the rude carousals of our own Teutonic ancestry. <laughs> um, and they lacked the, 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 they lacked the, 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 the joyful abandonment of the warriors of Gothic races. 
Um, does, uh, do you know, I don't know if anyone edits it. But, uh, it's amazing how he's managed to get three volumes in these days into the Library of America. But anyway, he has. Um, Canadian and tra Trappers, I guess I've done them. Wolves, he didn't like them either. Wolves were squalid and Russian-like and conscious felons. You know, the wolves were evil. Sneaking, too. The prairie dogs were, he says, not fastidious. German emigrants, again, their fierce spirit which impelled their ancestors, scarce more lawless than themselves from the German forest to inundate Europe. Ambiguous attitude to Germans trekking across the prairie. Mormons, didn't like Mormons at all. Armed fanatics, a very dangerous body of men. Didn't approve either of the character of Byron, although he quotes Byron at the heading certain chapters quite a lot. Um, and then he excuses himself, you know, a genius, but alas, um, a genius with a pitiful and, un, uh, yes, and unsavory character. Yes, that's Byron. He didn't like the fox. The fox was a totemic animal of some of the Indians. And his comment on that was an animal which a white man would hardly have selected for a similar purpose. Not that white men have totemic animals. There's this subtle and uh, this subtle and cautious character of the fox agrees well enough with an Indian's notion of what is honourable in war warfare. One could go on. I, I, I guess I will go on, in fact, because he has rather marvellous disapproval of the of the Quakers. You'd have thought, well, you know, there's the Quakers, the you know, Quakers again, who you know made peace with the Indians, you know, the peaceful kingdom and all that. No, no, the the the, the, the it's right to the Quakers' feelings for the Indians, their affection for the injured for the for the injured for the native race uh, was now inflamed into a sort of inflamed into a sort of benevolent fanaticism. The more rabid of the sect could scarcely confess that an Indian could ever do wrong. And he says, well, all these Quakers, the Indians are massacring right, left, and center, and the Quakers are sitting peacefully, smoking by their Philadelphia firesides. Hopeless lot, Quakers. We can't have them either. Um, yeah. Um, there we are. Yes. And as for the Indian... What is his destiny? Here I, I summarize. His destiny is to disappear along with the buffalo on which he depends. As simple as that. There are occasional paragraphs where um, Parkman simply says, these people have had it, they're going to disappear, they can't survive, they cannot be assimilated, they cannot be civilized, the missions are no good. Um, uh, preaching to the Indians is like preaching the, the, the preaching falls on stony ground the Indian is like a rock you can't, there's no hope for that that's Parkman's sort of summary and a number of these observations are worked up further in his historical writing um, he started his historical writing soon after getting back to Boston and scribbled away uh, the, uh, France and England in conquest of North America for the rest of his life. Um, there are some marvellous passages in you know, his historical writing, which I haven't, confess I haven't read it all, 
it would be dishonest for me to pretend that I'd read all seven volumes, but I read a bit of it. Um, and I, I, in order to be fair to Parkman, I'm going to quote a bit of that. Um, because, it, it, as I say, it, there, there, are, there are two bits which I, I'd like to show to you. Um, one is his, his writings on the, the, the contrast between the French and the English, between the Canadians and the New Englanders and the, the, in, in this Western movement. Um, it's strictly it's worth quoting on. He, it, it, what one feels with Parkman is that he's in a way terribly attracted to the things he disapproves of. This is what gives his writing, I think, a lot of its vigour. Um, on the Canadians, on the French, in every quality of efficiency and strength, the Canadian fell miserably below his rival, that is, the English colonists. But in all that pleases the eye and interests the imagination, he far surpassed him. Buoyant and gay, like his ancestry of France, he made the frozen wilderness ring with merriment, um, and in the answer to the howling winds of the pine forest with peals of laughter, and warmed with revelry the frozen ice of the St. Lawrence. Well, people don't write like that anymore. It's rather a pity if one has to choose between where a lot of people write. But anyway, more of that. On the English, in contrast, the English are people of thoughtful brow, their hands hardened with toil, um, uh, bowing reverently to the law that they themselves have made. No lovers of war, but persons of indefatigable courage, steadfast energy, you know, etc., etc., etc. The very pith and marrow of a commonwealth, he calls them. Though back to the French, you know, Canada languished. It lacked vital energy and sap. Yes. And the English pioneers, um, you know, as Charlevoix observes, he says, uh, the savages did not become French, but the French became savages. <laughs> um, you know, sort of, yes, they didn't put up the right sort of resistance. And as the English, though they became barbarous, they did not become Indians. But one of the others in my list of um, Parkman's disapprovals, trappers come fairly high. Didn't like trappers. He didn't also like think much of the, of the settlers moving in their wagons across the prairie. He thought they were largely deluded, and most of them pretty low class. And didn't didn't take much of a shine to them. His editors, of course, had complained the whole time that Parkman didn't understand the historical moment. Well, no, he was a young man, if you like, with the eye of a camera. He wasn't, in, he wasn't interested in the Mexican War, which was taking place at the time. He wasn't interested in the Oregon dispute between the United States and Canada. He wasn't interested in the economic potential of the prairies or anything like that. No. Anyway, the English, here they are. Though they become barbarous, they did not become Indians. Scorn on the one side and hatred on the other marked the intercourse of these of the hostile races, that is, between the English and the Indians. Thus the native population shrank back before the English as from before an advancing pestilence. There is occasional sort of even-handedness visible there. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, I've already mentioned these people who understand. It says he doesn't know, well, he didn't, even though he missed the historical context. It's an amusing American and Indian count of the quotes of the what the Indians thought of the Mexican War, but Parkman wasn't very interested in that. He loves, however, you know, he does love making your fresh creep. Well, it's another of his techniques, is he, you know, when the Jesuits being tortured to death by the Hurons or something like that, Parkman says, you know, these tortures are really, you know, the pen shrinks from describing them, he says. And then he describes them. <laughs> this makes him, you know, a jolly good read. Now, um, the quality of a photograph. And I'm going to just quote, before going on to Mansia, I'm just going to quote one more photograph of... Apartments where occasionally, this is a characteristic he shares with Mansia, that occasionally there's a paragraph where he sees something and his little account of it has to, I think, a sort of enormous uh, symbolic impact. And here he's, it, it talks about the settlers coming with the wagons, wagon trains, out into the plains. And he says, it is worth noticing that on the plat, that's a bit of the prairie he's talking about. One may, may sometimes see the shattered wrecks of ancient claw-footed tables, well waxed and rubbed, or massive bureau of carved oak. These, many of them, no doubt, the relics of ancestral prosperity in the colonial time, must have encountered strange vicissitudes, imported perhaps originally from England, then with the declining fortunes of their owners, borne across the Alleghenies to the remote wilderness of Ohio or Kentucky, then on to Illinois or Missouri, and now at last fondly stowed away in the family wagon for the interminable journey to Oregon. But the stern privations of the way are little anticipated. The cherished relic is soon flung out to scorch and crack upon the hot prairie. This trail of furniture abandoned by this Western movement is something that sticks in the mind. Cruelty, I mentioned. Uh, he does, you know, he, it, 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 one famous passage in which he sees some old Indian up in a tree. He says, this Indian looks just like a vulture. And what is, you know, and I was tempted, you know, to have my rifle to hand, you know, and I thought, what a shot he would make. You know, and is there any, well, you know, such an ugly creature, just as ugly as the vulture he looks like. And again, great references, of course, to the hags in Macbeth every time the old Indians dance round the fires. Okay, press on, on to the Rankel Indians. Um, Mansion, 1870. Um, coming from the Paraguayan War, where he has fought a long war and has been several battles and all that, he's 40. Of course, he's 40 and has, is a very well-traveled man from a very, well, from a very privileged background. The Mansiers were very rich. Even the sums he had to spend on his trip to India, for example, starts off with 1,000 Mexican doubloons and he's letters of credit for 20,000 pounds, he says. That's a hell of a lot of money for the time. And his father, Lucio, was a land speculator and an estanciero, and there's plenty of money, plenty of money. And, you know, Mancia has this extraordinary energy and self-confidence, and very much mundo, a great deal of mundo, very well read, and, and, um, and altogether uh, different, different from the young Parkman. Um, Sarmiento's president, 
Um, Mansi has been one of the backers of Samyanto, but has only been rewarded with a not very important military command in the south of Cordoba. Samyanto, Mansi hoped always to become a minister. It's a person of perpetual political ambition. But Samyanto said, you know, look, for God's sake, uh, it, 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 bad enough the Argentines put up with me if they have to put up with the two of us together that would be completely impossible and so he sends him to this command in Cordoba um, well he makes a treaty with the Rancal Indians um, who were the Rancalis? Eva um, Achilles is the translator of the University of Nebraska tome uh, isn't it trained? Uh, she's a degree in anthropology, and the notes in her excellent translation tell one that they were actually Araucanized Tehuelches. I hope I pronounced that right. Anyway, there are these pampas tribes which cross from the front of Chile, which are again dangerous. Um, there are about, he read those, reckoned there were about eight or ten thousand of them in the complex of. Mariano Rosas, who is the cacique of the Rancal Indians, which is the group that Mancia is going to visit. Um, there are about 10,000, including around about 800 uh, Christianos, captives, deserters, um, people fleeing from justice, adventurers, etc., etc. And he reckons the number included about, it's reckoned the number included about 1,300 Indios de Pelea, if you like, Indians who were capable you know, of causing trouble. And the Indians did continually cause trouble. The famous Malon, the whole process of the Argentine frontier from early days onwards is a gradual expansion through a system of, of alternating treaties, alternating small military campaigns, sometimes quite large military campaigns, such as the dictator Rosas managed in 1834. I think I got the date right. Anyway, and, and, and more of the dictator Rosas in a minute. Um, he goes, um, Mancia has made this treaty, and the, the treaty needs finicatiando. There are some details which he needs to clear up. So he decides to go and visit the Tolderias, the encampment of the Rancalis. Um, and the Rancalis have been also getting more aggressive while the Argentine state was involved in the Paraguayan War. Paraguayan War was, if you like, saw a revival of Indian raids and things like that because the government was occupied in fighting them Paraguayans. Um, so off he goes to sort out the, dif the, different, uh, the difficulties of his little treaty. Um, some background here. Of course, one I've already mentioned, there's a sort of long trajectory in the dating back to Spanish imperial times to colonial times of Argentine Indian policy or Indian policy in this region. There are treaties, there are little lines of fortresses, there are shifts between military deployments and diplomacy with the Indians. Um, there's also a certain missionary presence, church presence. Um, and also, Mancia's family has been, if you like, he was hereditarily involved in this. His father had written also a, a study, a, a book on, a, 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 or at least a pamphlet on El Problema de los Indios. And of course, Rosas, who's, Mancia is, Rosa, must remember, Mancia is Rosas' nephew. 
and Rosehurst, of course, you know, this was a family business. His family, his father was also a land surveyor and a land speculator, and among other things. Uh, um, yeah. So, you know, it's a long-standing family tradition. Mansia is not doing something that comes if you're new to his... There is also a long tradition in the Spanish Empire. And I, here again, I, I think this, this is... If you're, anyone here is looking for a sort of general point of comparison, um, the Spanish ethnographical tradition is far stronger than that of Anglo-America. If you could... One of the things I'm... Professor Elliot doesn't mention in his studies of the Atlantic world. If you look at the, if you look at the, the, the detailed and numerous Spanish imperial descriptions of Indians, and you compare them to the very scant and and, and not very interesting Anglo-Saxon literature on Indians prior to the 19th century, Mansur comes from a, if you like a much richer ethnographical tradition, people like Felix de Azara and other people who had written about the Indians of Argentina, you know, so he has that, you know, he, he's being very well read, he, he was familiar with all that sort of stuff, and so he had, if you like, more precursors in the sort of uh, on, uh, writing on the themes that he was going to write about. Um, this is, of course, a crucial era in Argentine Indian policy. The Diplomatic treaty making uh, componendas are going to be put a stop to by General Rocker after 1880 with Rocker's Conquista del Desierto. And if you like, Mancia is the last, uh, an exponent of the last era of treaty making and that sort of policy. Argentine policy, in a word, is going to get much more like North American policy uh, soon after this. So it's a sort of last, interesting last moment. Um, anyway, off he rides with his little company in beginning on the 30th of March, 1870. His excursion is only 18 days. His, I say a little company. He had, I don't know, 20, 20, 30 troops with him. Something like that. Little company of cavalry. And he's only going to, the whole trip takes 18 days. Um, sets out, he says, on a Tuesday. A Tuesday is a bad day to set out on a journey. It's a bad day to get married, to present petitions, to ask for a loan, or to commit suicide. Uh, and Seal is a very joking and surprising writer. And he also says, gosh, I'm going out on the plains again, and I'm 40. What wouldn't one do, he says, for a pot of cold cream? Because, you know, the wind does horrors to the complexion. And it's a very surprising way to, you know, one thinks, gosh... You know, yeah. Incidentally, people have checked the facts of Mansia's excursion, and Mansia doesn't appear to have invented anything, which, seeing some of the things he sees, is very remarkable. Anyway, off we go. Um, it sets out again these symbols which he manages. He's a great ironist. Where does he set out from? He sets out from 14 Samiento. You remember 30, 40 years earlier, well, 25 years earlier, Sarmiento has published Civilization and Barbarism, Facundo, and all this is, of course, very much in the ironic references that Mancia is making. But he sets out from 14 Sarmiento, and there in 14 Sarmiento, his little headquarters is the Club El Progreso de la Pampa. 
you know, progress of the Pampas is where he sets out from, which he says has an excellent billiard table. And you can see the sort of irony beginning just in the very setting of his departure um, into the territory of Mariana Rosas. Um, on the journey, there are campfires. And Mancia has marvelous image of the attraction. You know, they camp for the night, they light a fire. And Mancia says, who can resist the campfire? One can no more, a man can no more resist going close to the campfire than a woman can pass in front of a mirror without looking at herself. That's a slightly sexist remark, perhaps, but one gets, you know, artist. He could, all these people could write. Um, round the campfire he gathered his troops Mansia was a man who could again establish relations with all sorts of people not only with the, as he does with the Indians in a very striking and intimate manner but also with his own troops was very, Mansia was I think was an extraordinarily humane person and he gets them to tell their lives. And it, all these troops, you know, were there in the Hasta de Linea. Being in the Hasta de Linea in uh, 19th century Argentina was no joke. This was, a, if you like, as severe a punishment as you were, you know, beyond the, you know, this side of the death penalty that you were likely to run into. This was, these were people who, uh, whose lives had who had suffered a great deal, whose lives were frequently wrecked by one thing or another, and they end up, as you know, they're recruited or sent into the, into the army. And there are a number of tales of these medio gaucho troops, which Mancia records. Mancia's writing, incidentally, two years before Martin Fierro, which is, of course, the miraculous poem which sums up all that in verse. And all these little stories of Mansiers, which I haven't got time to go into, are a lot of them extremely moving, and they're very graphically told. They're beautifully told, and and uh, if you like, it begins with a number of short stories, and you begin to see that what Mansiers is doing is saying, you know, on this little trip, I'm going to see everything. I'm going to be able to tell you what this country is really like. I'm going to learn really what our government is like, what our people are like and what aren't, well, again, what our Indians are like. And he had this adaptability, as he says, he quotes Alcibiades, donde fueres has lo que vieres, you know, which is Greek, but isn't Greek. It's, it's like when in Rome do as the Romans, which isn't Greek either, but the Mancia was a very, very adaptable person and filled again with curiosity about uh, the, the, the human beings around him. Listening to my countrymen tell about their adventures, I've learned how justice is administered, how one governs, what our people think of their governors and their laws. One does not learn about the world in books. I've learned more about my country going to visit the Rankelis than in years of reading pamphlets, newspapers, gazettes and books, he says. Anyway, right. Um, first reflection on, uh, yeah, you'll see it, wait a moment, wait a moment, wait a moment. 
At the end, he says, when he gives one his first request in, in, in reflections on civilization, a little parenthesis in this journey, then he says, yes, of course, I begin to think about civilization. Civilization has its advantages over barbarism, but not so many as those who call themselves civilized think. Um, civilization consists, if I may give, my, I give myself an exact idea of it, in various things, he says. In paper collars, which are much more economical. In patent leather boots, in kid gloves. In there being many doctors and many sick, many lawyers and many pleas, many soldiers and many wars. In printing many newspapers and circulating many lies in building many houses with lots of rooms and little comfort, in governments composed of many, uh, of many persons, presidents, presidents, ministers, congressmen, which all govern as little as possible, and that there are many, many hotels, and all of them very bad, and all of them very expensive, and there's where one catches yellow fever and the cholera. <clears throat> Why not appoint hotel inspectors, he goes on. It's a great one for getting off the point. Um, we, we could easily appoint hotel inspectors. We could fill these posts, he says, by competitive examination, checking the knowledge, competence, aptitude, morality, and physical state of the candidates. And this being a very patriotic country, there would be no lack of candidates for these positions. Yes? Yeah, anyway. You have to remember this was someone writing in 1870. You know, it's okay. You can say it's quite easy to be witty. It wasn't that easy to be witty like that in 1870. That's a long time ago. Um, people were witty in 1870, but not in this sort of a way, usually. He journeys on. And he tries to recruit a few gauchos. And the gauchos, he says, come with us and we'll go and rob the Indians. But the gauchos say, no, no, you're going to recruit us. We're not going to be fooled. Um, he then gets to the Tolderias, and what does he find in the encampment of Marijuana Rosas? He finds a, a very varied conglomeration of human beings. He finds many Christians, as one mentioned that statistic. There are, you know, these aren't all Indians. He finds there are many mestizos, and many people clearly of mixed blood. There are many adventurers, there are people fleeing from justice, and there are the defeated. It's another interesting aspect of his observation of the frontier. Um, he says, you know, in the camp among the Indians, Christianos, there are many dreaming of him, says one of his editors says, he resumes this, you know, many people dreaming of impossible vengeances and the resurrections of dead or defeated Chaldeans, of a revolution that will redeem them. In hating as they hate the authorities that threaten them only with the stocks, the sepal, or with putting them in the Hastadelinia. It's a sort of, you know, human flotsam has been cast up on this shore, which is, again, he's extremely moved by frequently because he gets many of these people again, they tell him his stories. And he finds the politics of the past. He says, you know, what we have here is Nostalgia Federal. Um, la Santa Federación allá está el orden del día the Holy Federation these are people again who some of them think that Rosas is going to come back Rosas has gone of course in the early 1850s and has died in England in 1867 if I remember rightly but there's still people that 
Mancia Fancio who thinks that Rosas is going to come back and then for them it's all going to be okay again. Anyway, a lot of no, no, no. Um, there's a lot of news and a lot of politics. Mariano Rosas, who is the Achicado of Rosas, Mariano Rosas, the cacique, had been captured by Rosas in the Conquista del Norte's campaign of the desert in 1834, and a little, little Mariano has been, is the Achicado of Rosas. Rosas was his, his, his godfather baptized. The little boy then, the, the little young Indian then flees away. Rosas tries to say, why don't you come back with some of your friends? But Mariano Rosas is rather too wise to do that. So he stays out with the Indians. So there is this relationship again between Mancia and uh, who is Rosas's nephew and Mariano Rosas the cacique who is the Achicano of Rosas. So they, you know, they have some, they can chat about the family. You know, it's a good thing. Anyway, a lot of politics. This is, I think, interesting too, because um, these situations, these contact situations are enormously complicated. Something that Parkman sort of doesn't get into. But, you know, the more you look, the more complicated this situation looks like. Um, strange, organized, raggle-taggle. Lots of horses, obsession with horses. The way Indians greet is always, ¿Cómo están los caballos? And how are the horses? Instead, ¿Perdido algunos caballos? ¿Cómo están los caballos? Horse conversation all through it. And again, Mancia is an excellent ethnographer. He would have made, well, he was a marvellous anthropologist, although this is, if you like, both these people are writing in in the dawn of modern ethnography. Um, He describes also the the intense gift-giving that you have to go in for. He gives away his fur gloves, he gives away his hat, they give away their underclothes, they give away the lot, because the Indians insist on gifts, and the Indians give them things, intense gift exchange. And Mancia even gives away his dog, which he christened Brazil. I think probably, perhaps reflecting on the Brazilians whom he didn't think much of in the Paraguayan War. Anyway, he has a very fine dog called Brazil. And one of the Indians, you know, obviously hints. And there's a terrible scene when Mancia finally goes, that Brazil tries to follow him. And they see Brazil running towards them, but the Indian has his bowlers, and he bowled out of the dog, and so the poor dog doesn't get back. The dog, Mancia describes the dog also as having always looked at him as if he was very anxious to leave these people. He didn't want to stay around, but stay around it had to. Never mind. Um, great deal of drinking. Um, also, the ceremony of when you meet and you met an Indian, you had you had to lift him up. The Indian lifted you up off the ground, and you had to lift the Indian off the ground. And Mansell said that he did a great deal of lifting, and very impressed they were the Indians by Mansell's ability to lift heavy Indians. I see the things bugged up. Sorry, is that working? Yep. Uh, right. Um, Yes. Um, dangerous. Um, the drinking was dangerous, too. Um, vignettes. 
a similarity between Parkman and Mansier was this, uh, you know, the extraordinary photographic snapshot quality of uh, some of the uh, little scenes. I'm going to inflict one on you in a minute. Those of you who are interested in the history of photography, actually there is a photograph of Mansier setting and his little gang setting out on the exhibition, expedition, which I haven't managed to put in PowerPoint, because I don't do PowerPoint. Um, and uh, we're also, they describe, uh, he describes the archive that Mariano Rosas, the Indian chief Cacique has. And he says he has a little box, a little cardboard box of photographs. Photographs of Akisa, photographs of Sarmiento, photographs of the politicos of the time, which I've, that's just an interesting detail. Um, the, the, the sketch, the most striking sketch, is um, of the, the baptism of Mariano, one of Mariano Rosas' daughters. Um, Mancia is invited to be the godfather of one of Mario de Cacique's daughters. And I'll summarize it, I won't read it because it's in Spanish. Um, it, 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 Mancia is carrying the little girl and he notices that she's very strangely dressed. Um, she has, and then she did, keeps, keeps looking at her, and she's wearing boots made of cat skin, Botas de Potro, as they say, you know. But on top of that, she has a very remarkable dress. It's a dress which has got gold embroidery, which has got sleeves, etc., etc., uh, like Mary Queen Scots. And just very fine with jewels and, you know. And Mansia keeps thinking to herself, well, where did this dress come from? How did they, where did the heck did this come from? And he can't keep his mind on the baptism service because he keeps looking at this little girl's dress and thinking, where, where, where? And finally he asks one of the sort of villains at his side, so very dangerous people around in the baptism too, where did you get the dress? Ah, the chap says, um, that dress came off uh, the, it came off the Virgin de la Villa de la Paz. Uh, you know, that was the Virgin statue, and in our last raid we took it off, and we gave it to the chief. And so there the chief is baptizing his little daughter dressed up in the rope of the Virgen de, you know. And uh, that's just one of the uh, little, I'm going to quote more of the Mancia in a minute, before coming to an end. And he has these extraordinary conversations with the Indians, particularly with Mariano Rosas. And um, the, the, it, 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 these arguments, they argue about history. You know, who did the most massacring? Who killed who when? Whose fault was it that this happened? Who robbed what? Who stole what? Who, uh, you know, what was the land like before the Spaniards came? And Mancia, who's kicking... You know, he has to stand up for his side, so to speak. And so he says, you know, you don't realize, you people, you're ignorant, you don't realize that we brought the horses and we brought the cattle. And the Indians say, no, no, impossible. The cattle and the horses have always been here. You're lying. 
your lyres, you don't know. And you have this, these, uh, these extraordinary exchanges between the two, the two sides. Um, and uh, the quote I'm going to end with is, is, is uh, or not quite ending, I've got to go on for a bit longer. Um, uh, the, the, they have a final conversation, Mariana Rosas and Mancia, before Mancia leaves. And it goes like this. Um, this is Mariana Rosa's sort of final words to Mancia. Um, Brother, he said, uh, when the Christians have been able to kill us, they've killed us. And if they can kill us all tomorrow, that's what they will do. They have taught us to wear fine ponchos. <coughs> they've taught us to drink mate. They've taught us to smoke. And they've given us a taste for sugar. And they've taught us to drink wine and to wear proper boots. But they've not taught us how to work. And they've not made known to us their God. So, brother, what do you really think we owe you? And Mansur says that reduced him to silence. And, see, he said, actor de conscientia y calle, Mansur says. And then he says, he writes, no hay peor mal que la civilización sin clemencia. There is no greater evil than civilization without mercy, he says. Right. Um, as with the scene that Parkman described in the Oregon Trail, uh, the end was to be also, if you like, the, the virtual disappearance of the Indians. At least their disappearance in uh, in, uh, as the sort of coherent groups that Mansier had seen. Mansier's later view was that this was inevitable. Um, he didn't think, he, he participated in later debates in Congress on El Problema de los Indios, and Mansier says later on, they are Argentinos, pero les imposibles civilizados. They're not assimilatable. Mansia then, later in life, wrote very interesting reflections on what Argentine society was going to be like, the problem of incorporating the immigrants from Europe, etc., etc. But he really, on the Indians, his marvellous book on the Rancalis was really virtually his last word, except for saying in this congressional debate that, unfortunately, it's a lamentable thing, but we cannot assimilate these people. Um, and after 1880, as I said, you know, things change. Um, these, this was, you know, so, you know, when I was first thinking of this, I thought perhaps I could make some sort of play between the American frontier and the Argentine frontier. And sometimes it even sort of tempted to say that one might be better than the other or something crude like that. But I was then sort of forced to abandon such notions, notions and come down with this, you know, this, this basic similarity. Um, reluctant, though, yeah. One can make other comparisons. The Argentine frontier was clearly more military. There are very few soldiers around, except for those drifting to and fro the Mexican War in Parkman. Um, there's less spontaneous, there are no wagon trains in Mancia, if you like, and there are still traces of that old Spanish missionary element. There were two Franciscans, for example, who accompanied Mancia on his excursion. 
Um, I'd be reluctant, as I said, to sort of play Mancia against Parkman or to do anything like that. Um, but it, it, partly because, as I've uh, stressed, Parkman was much younger, came from, if you like, a much more restricted and buttoned-up background, didn't have uh, Mansur's advantages, etc., etc. Ava Hill is, writes, though, that one does, I do have to recognise, I think, certain superiority in Mansur, certain notes, for example, that he manages to touch, which Parkman doesn't. Um, and she writes, on the central Indian problem, in the political and moral meaning of the relation between global and local society and culture, the frivolous intellectual dandy narrating his travels um, in wild country over a century ago, that's Mancia, can suddenly strike us as speaking in the voice of a contemporary. Um, Mancia was profoundly um, patriotic, and his, like Guido, his desire was for a just Argentina, which incorporated all sorts. There are some very eloquent passages in later Mancia, which, if you like, insist on an inclusive Argentina. This man was not, you know, he, would, he had his moments of frivolity, certainly, but he was basically serious. And when reading those passages of Mancia, I was remembered to a phrase of Guido's. Guido loved saying, you know, the great thing is we must have nobody outside the walls. Nadie fuera de los muros. He used to do it in Latin, but I think his Latin was wrong, so I won't repeat his Latin. Nadie fuera de los muros. Everyone inside the city was what, in, again, was something Guido very firmly believed in. Okay, and what are we to make of all this now? Um, Mancia had another phrase. Um, he used to say, ironically, hemos avanzado, hemos avanzado um, sin duda, uh, sin duda hemos avanzado pero. We have advanced, we've progressed, but then he would say but, and then would come the string of Mancia's reservations about, okay, we've made progress, but we haven't got all that far. And this took me back to thinking about the clash of cultures, if you like, and, it, and these contact situations and the interculturalidad, which these strings remind me of. Um, <clears throat> Indian cultures are now, as I found out in the visit to the Kogi, they're endowed with a, a new vocabulary, a new repertoire of terms, and if you like, a new vocabulary of complaint, etc., 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 um, but we still, I think, tend to deny individuality. I think also um, it's a lot of our respect is pretty bogus. Um, we endow Indians, for example, frequently with many inauthentic qualities, <coughs> such as an universal respect for the balance of the environment. If you read Parkman on how the Plains Indians are just as busy as the whites in slaughtering the buffaloes in order to buy drink, one thinks that perhaps this environmental Indian, this ecological Indian, is, if you like, just another stereotype, a different stereotype from those of the 19th century, but just as much of a stereotype. 
I read yesterday's Guardian. That may surprise some of you, who may think that I don't read the Guardian. I read the Guardian in order to react against it. And what did I find in yesterday's Guardian? I found, going on here about stereotypes, I found that the University of Colorado has warned the students that there are certain things that they shouldn't do in Halloween parties. They shouldn't dress up as Red Indians. They're not allowed to call them Red Indians, of course. They shouldn't dress up as Native Americans because this may be badly misunderstood. Nor should they dress up as cowboys because, again, cowboys have been badly misunderstood. And, and they shouldn't also wear sombreros because Mexicans have been badly misunderstood. So, you know, that's, don't, if you have any urge to do anything like that, don't go near the University of Colorado. <laughs> we still generalize away. And we're probably, I think, no freer of stereotypes than our forebears were 100 years ago or with Parkman 150 years ago. Only we are less conscious of the stereotypes that we ourselves entertain. And what is more, we don't write such good books. <laughs> thank you very much, Malcolm, and thank you for weaving in lots of interesting stories about Guido and honoring him, as well as teaching us a lot about history. And um, when I asked Malcolm about question and answer, he said, it's not the sort of lecture that lends itself to question and answer. And does that mean you want to repair to the reception? Or would you, um, would you are you? No, if anyone wishes to protest, it's a free country. <laughs> <laughs> but I should also say that we have, is Malcolm Harris here? Yeah. Sorry? Um, okay, Malcolm Harris has provided us with some Malbec to oh, have uh, next door if you'd like models. to continue the discussion. Yeah, there. they probably had Would you like to do that? Um, I, 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 wanted to, I forgot to read uh, one passage of. I'm going to read one passage of Parkman because I forgot to read it at the time. And I think I've been a bit harsh. And this is just a, it's a piece of writing. And it's partly because there are some anthropologists here and some Canadians, so, you know. And um, going back about, the, you know, what it was like to have engines on the brain, if you like, in the 1840s, 50s. And he's describing here the state of the Iroquois. And he gets into mythology. And I've never understood mythology. And I shouldn't think Parkman did either. But here it goes, because it's such a super passage. In these evil days, the scattered and divided Iroquois were beset with every form of peril and disaster. Giants cased in armor of stone descended on them from the mountains of the north. Huge beasts trampled down their forests like fields of grass. Human heads with screaming, streaming hair and glaring eyeball or eyeballs shot through the air like meteors shedding pestilence and death throughout the land. A great horned serpent, I do like these serpents which keep cropping up, 
a great horned serpent rose from Lake Ontario, and only the thunderbolts of the skies should, could stay his ravages and drive him back to his native deeps. The skeletons of men, victims of some monster of the forest, were seen swimming in the lake of Teungkito, and around the Seneca village on the hill of Gen Genundawa, a two-headed serpent coiled himself, of size so monstrous that the wretched people were unable to send his scaly sides, and perished in multitudes by his pestilential breath. Mortally wounded at length by the magic arrow of a child, he rolled down the steep, sweeping away the forest with his writhings and plunging into the lake below, where he lashed the black waters till they boiled with blood and foam, and at length, exhausted with his agony, sank and perished at the bottom. Under the falls of Niagara dwelt the spirit of the thunder, with his brood of giant sons, and the Iroquois trembled in their villages when, amid the blackening shadows of the storm, they heard his deep shout roll along the firmament. I don't think we write him like that now. Yeah.